There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 74. Today in the show, we're joined by Jeff Lindsay, and we're diving into the circumstances and tactics that have led Jeff and his dad to consistently bag big, mature bucks. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. It's great to be here recording the podcast again after taking a little time off chasing elk. And I don't know about you guys, but I am really fired up about the whitetail season that's now upon us. And today we're going to be diving deep into the world of one very successful whitetail hunter, Jeff Lindsay. And if you've watched any of the shows or DVDs from the Drury Outdoors over recent years, You've likely seen Jeff or his dad, David, killing big buck after big buck after big buck, as these guys are just consistently putting some absolute giants on the ground. In fact, David Lindsay killed a buck a few years ago that, at the time, was the largest free-range whitetail ever killed on film. So, needless to say, Jeff and David are doing something right. So, with all that being the case, you know the plan today is to chat with Jeff all about how him and his dad have been able to have this kind of success. And I'm really interested and intrigued to hear about that. But before we get into it, we, me and Dan, do have some updates to share. And I don't know about you, Dan, but uh, are you as pumped as I am to kick off the whitetail season? Yeah, I tell you what, I'm excited. But because there's so many other things going on in my life, it's just it's not as intense this year as any other year's. If that makes sense, just like my mind is other places. Yeah. So the the knitting business is going that well for you, huh? Yep. The knitting. Yep. Basket weaving. <laughs> you know, it's really taken off. Probably gonna miss the rut this year because of it, dude. But, you you got to knit those little booties. Yep. It's about sacrifices. <laughs> no, what really is going on? Just kids stuff. Just kids, work, and uh, life. You know. So it's just uh, it's nuts. It's cr- like my my life is crazy. I, you know, 
maybe 10 years ago, if you said, dude, you had four people in your bed last night, that's pretty sweet. <laughs> you know, like and now last night I had four people in my bed and I slept on like four inches of bed. And so, one of those people is like not even a foot long, probably. Well, oh, yeah. Two feet he, long. He's a he's a chunkster. My son is gaining weight at an exponential rate. Like he is just a stud. Like he's going to probably be six, four, probably, you know, he's probably going to be six, four, just really huge and big, but my luck, <laughs> he'll be like, instead of being an awesome football player, he'll be awesome at dungeons and dragons yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or magic the gathering. <laughs> Sounds like me and him would have got along well. <laughs> oh, are you serious? No, I'm kidding. Oh, okay. <laughs> although, although I was a bit of a video game player back in the day. Yeah. But never got into the cards. Never got in the cards. Uh, but I do feel like, like looking at Mac and pictures of him, I swear he's going to be growing a beard by like age six. I'm pretty sure. So he's he's going to have me beat before before long at all. <laughs> yeah, I have him. Uh, I, I'm already mixing Rogaine in with his breast milk. <laughs> So it should uh, hopefully that stunts his growth. Hey, hey, if that if that works for him, send us some of that my way. <laughs> hey, Sarah, I need some more breast milk. Yeah. Uh, uh, Mark needs some. Oh man, white tails. Uh, oh yeah, white tails. White tails. Let's refocus. <laughs> so man, I'll tell you what. You may not be focused on white tails right now, but I am. Like I've already got the jitters. Uh, stuff, stuff's been happening over here that has got me really excited. First and foremost, um, just last night, so we're recording this on a Tuesday, last night, Monday night, cold front hit overnight, and just before that cold front hit, I was kind of watching one of my food plots on one of these properties that I could hunt, and I noticed a bunch of does coming out, and then all of a sudden I noticed antlers, and I was like, holy smokes, there's actually a buck coming out here, and that's Every time I've been watching this food plot, I haven't seen crap. Um, and I was getting a little down about it, but all of a sudden there's a buck. And I'm like, holy smokes, big buck. So I raced to grab my camera. And as I watched this food plot, I didn't see just one shooter. I saw three potential shooters, um, which is like unheard of for these spots in Michigan. I mean, that's like, that'd be like an incredible day during the rut, let alone this time of year. Um, so was really jacked. One of the bucks was Turd Ferguson. You've heard me talk about Turd. Yep. Um, again, you know, none of these bucks are like monster bucks by, you know, your standards or some guy's standards. But, you know, three-year-olds in Michigan, um, it's really hard to come by, at least where I'm hunting. So that is a top 10% buck definitely in this area. So I'm going to be super stoked if I get a shot at one of these three-and-a-half-year-olds here that are, you know, pushing the Pope and Young somewhere in the or low Pope and Young category. That's a good buck for here. That's a good buck for me in this spot. So I'm excited for Turd to be there. And there was a third buck. I'm not sure who he was. He looked like a nine-pointer maybe, really dark, kind of chocolatey horned. Um, He looked pretty nice. And then the stud eight, um, who potentially, I think I had mentioned this buck a few weeks ago, that my neighbor had gotten some trail camera pictures of him. He might be the buck that I was chasing last year. There was a three-year-old last year that, if it's him, he'd be obviously four years old. This year, I called him Big because I the other three-year-old I had last year was called Tiny, so I had Big and Tiny. Uh, well, now I think this might be him back again. Just a really nice, solid Michigan eight-pointer. And, uh, man, all three of them were in the food plot, like 45 minutes before dark. So really excited about that. And uh, that cold front hit, and it's just going to get better. Like it dropped 10 degrees 
from yesterday to today. And then by Saturday, it's going to have dropped over 20 degrees. It's going to be down to the 50s by Friday and Saturday. Um, so my plan is I'm going to be hunting opening night here in Michigan, which is Thursday night. So the day this podcast goes live, hopefully, that night will be the opener in Michigan. I'll be hunting that property in Michigan where all these bucks were and maybe get a crack at one of them. And then the next day... The temperatures are dropping rapidly in Ohio, so I'm going to swing down to my Ohio property and hunt Friday night and Saturday night for sure. And then if I, you know, if things are still looking good, maybe Sunday too, um, and I'll be capturing that cold front there. So, man, the conditions look really good. Um, the moon, the the moon uh, position is going to be really good for this weekend in that area. We've talked a lot about that with Mark Drury and some of these other guys. Um, I'm going to be having. Uh, good moon overhead times during the primetime dusk hours in the evening hunts for Friday and Saturday and Sunday. So between the cold front and a good moon, I'm feeling good, Dan. That's good. Yeah, I tell you what, man, I, I checked my trail cameras this weekend, and um, I still, not recently, when I mean recently, I mean within the past 10 days, but Mark Canyon is still in the area within past past 10 days. Uh, Gordon Bombay made a appearance. The um, beast. Yep, the the giant. Um, just like three quick pictures of him walking by my trail camera. Um, Tupac, a buck I shot two years ago and didn't kill. And no, no word of Ryan Iberg. I kind of got a gut feeling that he he's you know he had the bad infection on his face. Yeah. And um, back of his legs. So I just don't have faith, real good faith that he's around. But um, two other, two or three other shooters um, that are four-year-olds that are in the area, and um, they're all on the outskirts. So the logging has pushed them out. Makes sense. Towards you know towards the, all that, all that. So um, so I'm I'm really happy that they're still in the area. Uh, one picture of um, the Tupac buck is right at first light in the morning. So he's he's walking by a trail camera and he's done it several times, but the last time he did it was like the 25th or something like that. I'll have to check the picture, but, um, right at first light. So that's a potential morning hunt right there. Do you, do you have that? Uh, well, two things first, are you gonna, are you able to hunt this coming weekend? Yep, I am. But beautiful. The problem is it's a Northeast wind and, I've, you know, I've really been looking for spots to try to hunt a northeast wind, so I might stay off my main farm and hunt up here closer to my home because um, I'm going to hunt Thursday night for sure. And then um, Friday and Saturday and Sunday are all going to be northeast winds up here. And I just picked up another 100-acre property um, within 10 minutes of my house. Man, so doing work, uh, son. Yeah, so – that just reminds me that it is never too late to ask for permission. Absolutely. Now, you know? uh, did you check your trail camera on that other piece close to home yet? Uh, yeah. So here's what happened. A branch fell out of a tree uh, and got and it got caught on another branch. So it just dangled back and forth. I had two days of trail camera pictures, uh, and that was it. And it took like 6,000 pictures in two days and then the batteries blew out. So that's brutal. Yeah. Or the card got filled up. I can't remember, but yeah, two days of pictures, got 6,000 pictures and 
one spike and one doe and that's it and that so but i gained access to this new piece through another piece that i can't hunt but i can walk through and uh, I'm, I'm really excited about that that's like that was i got this piece here i don't know if you ever get a piece of property and you're like man i gotta get here but if i go in with this wind it's gonna ruin everything so I went and asked and they gave me permission to walk through their property. So I'm pumped. I'm like more pumped about that than actual getting the property itself to hunt. Yeah. That's sweet, man. Wow. I'm yeah. excited for you. Yeah. So shoot, you will be out Thursday night and Saturday and Sunday, right? Uh, pre- pretty sure. And then I'll be out Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So hopefully by our podcast next week, we're going to have some good stories to tell. Yeah. I'm jacked. I, all I want to do is kill, kill a doe. Like that's all I want to do. I just want to, cause it, I didn't kill a doe last year and I didn't kill a doe the year before. Um, just because how everything worked out and I am, my goal early season is to fill the freezer. So I'm not going to be, you know, I'm going to be checking my trail cameras, but my main focus is meat. Yeah. I hear you. That was my plan going into the early season at first too. But now that I've got these cold fronts hitting in both these spots. And then this kind of recent sighting I had all of a sudden I'm thinking, man, I might have a chance at one of these bucks. My, my wind directions are great for both my properties. I'm trying to hunt the cold fronts hitting. The moon is good. I'm feeling like I've got a really good chance for, you know, a first couple days of the season buck kill. So, uh, I'm these hope- bucks, oh, I'm sorry. Now I was going to say I'm planning on focusing probably this weekend on the bucks. And then the following week or weekend is when I'll probably refocus on some does. Are those uh, bucks that popped out in this field? Do you have a trail camera in that area? Yeah, I've actually got a trail camera right where all these bucks were walking through. So unless for some reason that camera's not working, I should have good pictures of all three of them. Um, you know, right near that food plot, and then I've got another one that's maybe another three hundred yards away or so on a scrape that usually picks up most of the bucks in the area too. So so I should have some good pictures of these guys to get a to get a really good idea of okay. Are these bucks as old as I think they are? Are they the bucks I think they are, which I think so? Um, and so I'm going to check those cameras, probably one of them on the way to my stand Thursday night, and then one of them on the way out. And then I don't know what the property looks like, but do you have access in for a morning hunt on the backside of where these bucks are showing themselves to their bedding area? No. So this is no. a spot where I'll, I'll, I'll blow every deer in the world out if I yeah. try to go in the morning. So, gotcha. so it's just going to be a single, single evening hunt, and then to Ohio, and then uh, if I, you know, if I come back Sunday and I can hunt Sunday night, things still look pretty good for that place uh, in Michigan. So I might hunt Michigan Thursday, Sunday, and Ohio Friday, Saturday. I'm trying to catch the cold front in both places, so I'm going to bounce around a little bit. But uh, I think there's a, a chance. What are you doing in Ohio? Are you going to set up like an observation stand first and then kind of view the field or are you jumping into a, like a pinch point or something? Yeah, no, exactly what you said the first the first one there. The first night I'm going to sit in an observation stand that's perfect for the wind direction I've got. Um, and it's actually not, a, it's it's definitely an observation stand, but if the deer do what they many times do, they'll, they'll come out, it's, it's on this little finger of beans, this year it's beans, that cuts deep into this timber. And if I'm sitting kind of where that finger, that field, pinches down towards the end. And so if the deer come out to feed, like they have in past years around the same time, 
they'll typically feed down this field and there's a chance I could even get a shot at one. Actually, my first hunt ever on that Ohio property, I sat this stand, I set it up just to observe and I almost killed Jawbreaker that oh. first hunt. Nice. Um, he got to 70 yards and, and just didn't quite give me the shot I needed. I needed him about another 20 yards closer. Yeah. Um, so first night I'm going to sit there and just observe, see what's going on. And, um, then based on wind and what I see and everything, there's another couple stands I have that I can push in a little bit closer without being too crazy, but a little bit tighter if, if things look right. So right. that'll be a play by ear type of thing. Yeah. And then crops, man. Yeah. I don't know what crop. I mean, crops are coming out early all over the place. And yeah. I, I there's I got one stand set up specifically for this little buffer strip. And if the crops come out, I just don't think the deer it's going to hold the deer anymore. It'll be a it'll be a destination, but it won't be it won't be where they're holding anymore. So I don't know. What are your properties showing? Are, are crops coming out in Michigan? Yeah, we're seeing the same thing. Lots all like tons of beans are already out by us, which is like. I think at least a week or two earlier than they usually are oh, over man. here. Yeah. Last year, there's already one cornfield down where I, on my main farm that's out and they didn't harvest it last year until the end of November. Wow. So that's like a whole like month and a half, two months of coming out early. So all the deer are going to be piled into the, into the timber now. Yeah, which it's it's going to be interesting how yeah. that affects things this year. Right. Right. Well, I would say that uh, hopefully by next week we'll have at least a little bit of an idea of what that might mean for our hunting seasons, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about it. But, That's right. Uh, I think it's now time for, for us to to shut our traps and uh, talk, talk deer with Jeff. Sounds good. All right, let's give Jeff a call. But before we do that, we need to pause briefly for a word from our partners at Sitka Gear and as we do every week, we're chatting with product category leader, Dennis Zuck. And today, I wanted to hear from Dennis about one of my favorite pieces of gear from Sitka, and that's the Fanatic Jacket and Bib. And specifically, I'm curious to hear how exactly this very unique new set came to be. So here's Dennis on that very topic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so this kind of goes back to some earlier podcasts we had around you know how do we innovate and you know that product was starting around your hands you know we make we make apparel how funny is that and you know our concept was around your hands but you know thinking about a mitt like a mitt's always warmer than a five finger glove well a hand pouch where you can hold all that heat is probably your best solution especially if you're going to spend hours just with your hands doing nothing so you know we wanted to incorporate that hand pocket and and enable to do that we kind of needed to do this side zip feature which was at first, like we didn't know how people would like that or receive it, you know, and it's one of those things people have come to love actually, you know, and moving forward, you start thinking about well, what does that enable? And, you know, so thinking about what are the pieces I use, you know, so this guy's got his range finder and he's either hanging it on his bow hook or he's got it around his neck. What can I do with that? So we, we kind of created that, that side pocket where it's about minimal movement, you know, so I can just a little flip over the wrist and check a distance. You know, and the grunt tube, you know, so thinking about our late season stuff and one probably hunting big whitetails. And I, you know, when that happens, we're never always prepared and putting that grunt tube on your chest and even making sure that there's a vent. So, so you can, you don't even have to pull it out if you don't want to, you know, adding the tie off so that it won't, you know, that stuff doesn't fall to the ground and well, what I do, you know? So, you know, it was really, you know, born out of that hand concept and then thinking through all the little things that we, we, we deal with. You know, even the bibs, you know, most people don't know this. In the back, they're adjustable in waist. 
you know, people can make it fit them perfectly. And, you know, we map out, you know, where your rubber boots go, you know, so there's not a bunch of insulation that's making that thing too tight or too stiff. You know, the knees are even articulated. So if I'm going to spend hours sitting, you know, and I'm forcing, basically forcing against that two-dimensional knee, if I, if I articulate it and make it so it bends naturally, well, that becomes more comfortable, you know. So there's a, it was born from that theory of the hands. It's simple, right? But a lot of details go into your that to making it the great system that I think people really enjoy now. So there you go. And if you'd like to learn more about the Fanatic jacket, bibs, or any other whitetail gear from Sitka, visit SitkaGear.com. And now, let's really get Jeff on the line. All right. With us on the line now is Jeff Lindsay. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thanks, guys. What's up? Oh, man. We're just we're just stoked for hunting season. It's about to start for, for me in Michigan and Ohio and Dan over there in Iowa. So uh, Two days. Yeah. You too, right, in Iowa? Yeah, two days, man. We've been hunting a little bit, but, you know, October 1's the day that we celebrate. It's a beautiful day, isn't it? <laughs> it is, man. It it should be a national holiday, but we're working on that. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I was just working on my computer. My wife was sitting on the couch next to me, and she looked over. Half hour later, she looked over again, and she says to me, she's like, Mark, for the last half hour, 45 minutes, I swear you've been on the same website the entire time, and it was a weather, weather.com or something, just looking at weather <laughs> and, and wind direction. <laughs> right. Yeah, man, that's what you do this time of year, man. You check it out because it changes and you gotta you gotta know you gotta know where you're gonna gonna go exactly um i'm excited i've got a cold front hitting over here i don't know what it's like over by you guys but uh we've got some good weather same thing i think it's hitting the whole the whole entire midwest upper midwest that cold front and a lot of people's excited it's good timing it's good timing so uh so jeff for for people out there that maybe aren't familiar with with you and what you've been doing can you just share with our listeners a little bit about you know what you've been doing in the whitetail world so far and then maybe a little bit about your upcoming project that i know a little bit about the Lindsay way we'd love to hear about that too gotcha well um i was originally raised in the south and moved to the midwest about 11 years ago and you know started with jury outdoors about eight years ago and that's when we started you know carrying cameras around in the tree with us all the time and you know it was the best eight years of our life you know we had uh mark jury as a close neighbor and you know, we met him through my uh, my dad actually bought his farm and we turned that into family farm. And we added a lot of land to that and we we tried to big, build a uh, somewhat whitetail empire there. And um, you know, it's just it's our passion. It's what we've done my whole life. That's the only thing I've known. You know that and and working hard. But uh, it's it's my main hobby. And we just decided to venture off from Drury Outdoors. Uh, last year about a year ago and we just made it public last week so uh toughest decision we ever had to make but but we did things the right way we feel like we we remained friends with the juries the entire team that was our sole purpose going into that that worked and so it was kind of a uh, a parting of ways but uh but not really i mean we're still involved with jury outdoors and in some aspects and we're gonna try to grow the Lindsay way now that's awesome so the new show, it kicks off in 2016, is that right? That's right. Third quarter 2016 on the Sportsman Channel. Very cool. And it looks like the Heartland Bowhunter guys are involved in some way, is that right? That's right, yeah. Mammoth Media, Mike, Sean over at Heartland Bowhunter, they're going to be the guys uh, you know, producing it, putting it all together. And so uh, I've been friends with those guys for a long time. So this was an opportunity to work together, and, and we've done some things so far, so we're pretty pumped about it. 
That's sweet. Well, I uh, based on I know what, what they've done in the past, and then based on the hunting and deer I know you guys are having over there, it sounds like that's going to be a slam dunk. Yeah, you know, hopefully it's it's the best of both worlds. You know, giant deer, you know, produced with that cinematography. You know, that's that's what we're shooting for. That's our goal. So it's what I've wanted to do for a long time, and uh, you know, we think we got some some pretty cool ways to to share our adventures. You know, through television and and keep the audience on the edge of their seats. Very cool. Well, uh, I know me and Dan will be excited to see that, and I think that's a good kickoff to you know what we wanted to talk about with you. Uh, you mentioned the fact that you guys have built a whitetail empire over there in Iowa, and uh, you've got some giant deer. And, and certainly from what I've seen online and from what I've seen on you know the different things you've done with the Drury's, it's definitely the case. So you know we're hoping to ask a whole bunch of different questions about you know what has led to your success out there and, and some of the things you've learned along the way. But at a high level, to kick things off, you know you and your dad have killed a ridiculous number of big whitetail bucks. So I'm curious, you know. At a high level, what do you think is the single greatest factor, maybe, that has contributed to this success? If you had to just pick the most important. It would just be letting deer reach your full potential. You know, a lot of people, you know, that's the age-old debate, whether deer is fully mature at four, five, six, or whatever. But on our farm, you know, we try to let them get to as big as we think they're ever going to get. And and that's not easy. It's been tough, you know. I know I said whitetail empire, but that's a, a meaning just a lot of deer. You know, unfortunately, we don't have the big deer. Yeah, yeah, definitely getting that age on them is pretty important, huh? It is, man. That's the number one factor is, you know, laying off the, the young bucks and, you know, trying to – we've found out our magic number in Iowa is, is six or seven years old. You know, six is a really tough year to kill the bucks. But if a deer can make it to seven, we feel like that is as big as his rack's going to get. And, you know, at seven, they – I don't want to say they become a little easier to kill, but five and six are, are really tough. But at seven years old on our farm in our area – Seems to be the magic number. Yeah, yeah. Now, you know, I think it's safe to say that you would agree with this, that the situation you have there in Iowa on this great set of properties is unique compared to some people's. Um, You know, maybe guys in Michigan or New York or Georgia where they're on a small piece or hunting really heavily pressured ground. So, So I think a big part of probably why you're able to get some of these bucks up to six or seven years old is that you have a great property. Can you share with us, a little bit about what you think makes a property so great for deer you know can you share with us what your property holds you know what are those factors that make it so great yeah our farm um is almost a double-edged sword it has a lot of timber uh, which holds a lot of deer but it makes it very t- tough to hunt you know late season it's really good because they'll come out in the fields they'll come out you know the standing beans standing corn whatever it may be but you know as far as neighbors you know, that's another big factor that's helped us a lot. But, you know, you got to be where the big bucks are. And, and Southern Iowa has, you know, a, a higher average of big bucks than most other places. So that's one of the things we're blessed with. But, you know, cover, timber, that's what those Midwest deer like. But like I say, the, some of the other farms I've looked at in the past few years have kind of tried to get away from that timber because it's so tough to hunt. You know, I almost prefer hunting the more open ground, but you just don't hold the deer like you do on the on the timbered farms yeah so with your farm do you do anything to improve the cover or timber or is it just kind of naturally what's there yeah we do a lot of timber stand improvement we have a lot of switchgrass you know we try to you know have every part of our 
single part of our property, you know, working for us, whether it's the switchgrass, whether, you know, we're going in, we're cutting timber, whether we're leaving some standing corn, some standing beans. We don't, we try not to have any sections of our farm that we consider just, you know, zero habitat or, or, or nothing really going on for our deer, you know, whether it's, you know, going in and doing a, you know, prescribed burn or, or going in and, you know, mowing some clover, whatever it may be. We just try to keep the farm always turning over, having different habitat, you know, uh, different levels of growth and underbrush, stuff like that. Is this a, is this a working farm or do you guys have like ag and, and livestock as well? Yes, we just have ag. Okay. Our neighbors have some livestock, but we just have ag. You know, we, we lease a lot out to farmers. We farm some ourselves. We have some hay ground. Um, and then we have a fair amount that we leave for deer. And of course we have the, you know, the timber operation as well. Nice. So what about food? You know, it sounds like you're doing a lot of work on your cover and stuff. What kind of, I mean, what's your mix between keeping ground in ag land, you know, for commercial versus food plots and stuff? How are you divvying that up and what are you focusing from a food plot standpoint on? Well, last year, it's kind of a transition stage for our farm. We had a lot of CRP ground that was coming out of CRP. So we had to go in there, you know, mow it down, take out some cedars and either re-enroll it in CRP or turn it into farm ground. So we turned two or 300 acres back into farm ground. So we got more farm ground right now than we've ever had on our farm in the, you know, the eight years that we've owned it. So in turn, we almost feel like we have more deer than we ever have. But, you know, the farm ground, we only let the farmers farm, you know, kind of our outskirts. We like to keep our core with standing corn, standing, standing beans, because I feel that you can never have enough of that. Just feel like the more food, the more deer you're going to have. So, um, we're, we're, we try to work with our farmers. Our farmers are, are really good friends of ours. And if we go in and, you know, our food plots and the center of our farm are getting hammered and we need to leave some more food on the outskirts, you know, we'll work out a deal with them, you know, one way or another and, and, and try to keep it to get our deer at least enough food through, you know, the spring of the following year. Definitely, definitely. And that's always a goal, but that very rarely happens. It's nice to have that type of situation where they're, you know, willing to work with you in that way. That's great. It is. They are. We got some really good farmers, and um, we work with a couple different ones. And you know, that that's a lot of reason for our success is being able to, you know, deal with guys who who kind of understand what we're what we're coming, you know, on the same page, what we're coming from. Yeah. What's your What's your approach to pressure? on your farm. And what I mean by that is, are there certain areas you stay out of? Or are you just, cause for example, I hunt on a, on a farm. It's there's ag, there's livestock and there's people on it all the time. And the deer feel comfortable with that. What's your approach on your farm? Yeah, I've heard that a lot, you know, a working farm, you can get away with a lot more, you know, you can, whether you're going in and, and riding your truck around, riding the tractor around, I think on working farms in certain areas, you can you can get away with a lot. But we have what we call, you know, core areas, sanctuaries uh, on our farm that we will never go in. We will go in shed hunt, and that will be the only time of the year that we step foot in those uh, certain areas. And they're, they're not always huge. You know, we may have a five-acre sanctuary here. Across the road, we may have, you know, a hundred-acre sanctuary. Just, just different things. But, you know, pressure, that is one of our biggest um, – you know, pet peeves that we really try to try to monitor, you know, even the wind has to be right for me just to go check a camera, you know, or to, to go in and, and, and check on a food plot. We're always thinking about pressure because, you know, that's just one thing big white tails will not put up with on in our area, you know? 
Yeah, yeah, I think in a lot of places. And, and here's a question I've got because I'm, I'm curious, given your circumstances, which, you know, like in my case where I'm hunting a 90-acre farm in Michigan that's surrounded by, you know, five to ten hunters on every property around me. You know, there's so many other people out there that I've become obsessive about, you know, only hunting or only putting pressure on those deer when everything is just lined up perfect. Because if I go in there once and I don't have everything stacked in my favor, I'm probably going to educate deer and then not have another chance. So because of that, you know, I might be hunting a lot less just waiting for those perfect times to strike. You know, do you guys have to obsess to that degree? Or since you've got a larger property maybe, or since you have control of the pressure, can you get away with with more hunts because of that? You can when you have, you know, a few different farms for a few different wind directions, but I'm of your same philosophy, even though we do have a couple of more farms that we have access to, if it's not, you know, the ideal conditions, you're not going to get perfect conditions every night, but if it's not, you know, ideal conditions, we're not going in one of our best spots. We'll go somewhere on the outskirts, shoot some does, you know, now that I got a kid, maybe I'll stay home and, uh, you know, play with him that night or something. So the older I get, uh, I still, I feel like I still killing the same amount of deer, but I hunt less, if that makes sense. I kind of pick my battles wisely. Definitely hunting smarter instead of harder, maybe. Right, yeah, and it takes a long time to learn that. Yeah, definitely it's been one of my biggest kind of revelations over recent years is figuring that out. Um, Something you mentioned, you know, those those perfect conditions. A person that me and Dan and, and a lot of our listeners have learned a lot about those perfect or correct conditions, someone we've learned a lot from is Mark Drury, who, like you right. said, is, is one of your neighbors. Um, what has he, what have you learned from him? I mean, working with him and living close to him, what have you learned from him in regards to, you know, timing these hunts and, and figuring out the right times to hunt? Well, Mark's a mad scientist, you know. I mean, the stuff he comes up with and how it correlates to deer movement is stuff that nobody else in the world could come up with. I've learned a ton from him. You know, the good thing about living close to Mark is, you know, during deer season, we may go to dinner once or twice a week. You know, we're, we're texting almost every day. And he just comes up with these, you know, these off-the-wall things. Like, you know, he's really big on, for instance, uh, you know, after a cold front, the first south wind. I mean, how in the world do you figure that out over time unless you're keeping the best diary, the best yeah. hunting journal a man's ever seen, you know, and learn that this south wind, the deer, you know, off the charts. So, I mean, little things like that that I probably wouldn't have figured that out in my entire lifetime. Just the stuff he comes up with at first, I'm like, what? And then once I start paying attention to it, I'm like, golly, this guy, you know, he is, he has a talent. Yeah, he's he's got an incredible wealth of knowledge um, that, man, we, we had a podcast with him a couple months ago where he shared just such a boatload of information. I, I still go back and listen to it and take notes again because there's, there's a lot to learn from that guy. Oh, it is, man. And, you know, it, he's just one of those that has a, a wealth of knowledge. And, you know, every conversation we have, it seems like, you know, I'm trying to absorb all I can because he's, he lives with a deer, you know, he's. I know most people are, you know, part-time deer hunters hunting full-time deer, but, you know, I think Mark Drury's closer to a full-time deer hunter hunting full-time deer, you know, so he's yeah. he's got it figured out. Yeah, so he, I just saw online that last week, I think, he killed one of the bucks he's been after for a little while. Did you or did you get to see that deer over there? One night yeah, stand, I think? Yeah, I seen that. I think he shot that one in Missouri. That was a, a giant buck, you know. I mean, didn't take him long, and... You know, I don't know the whole story on that deer, but I, I think it, it read he had seen him 
like two years ago or a year ago and, and he came in that certain food plot so he just went on a hunch without any pictures this year and killed him and i mean that's that's having faith right there yeah yeah it is he's, he's got figured out so interesting stuff that's for sure yeah it is he's one of those that um you know mark doesn't doesn't write a lot of articles but he, he shares it more you know live and, and through his television and now through 13 and you know 13 is one of the best shows ever created for whitetail hunting, and I think that's why it's so popular is because people are getting to see Mark and Terry Drury, you know, killing deer, but but better better yet, telling, you know, telling the world their secrets per se. Yeah. How long have you been in the Midwest? About eleven years. Eleven years. Yeah. So what what's the difference? I guess, is there, is there a difference? Cause we don't talk about the South and hunting the South a lot on this show. Um, but is there, is there a difference between hunting the, the Midwest and the South? Yeah, it's huge. You know, growing up, I have, and I still have, I had the, every North American whitetail cover, I mean, a magazine, you know, since I was old enough to read and I would always study those books, you know, inside corners, super saddles, funnels, whatever it may be. And it, I just couldn't, you can't relate that to, you know, 100 acres of flatland pine trees or 100 acres of hardwoods. It's just, you know, no topo, no structure, no farmland, no nothing. So, I mean, it is a huge difference. It really is. And so when I got to the Midwest, all these articles, you know, growing up reading Bill Winkie, you know, Dick Idle, whoever it was, you know, all this stuff started making sense and um, kind of can put the pieces together a little more. Yeah, so... So I think you have been going back down south still. I think I remember seeing a number of hunts of you guys still go down there and hunt sometimes. What have you found does work down there, given the fact it's a lot different than the Midwest? Well, down there, you just got to get them to move. You know, I mean, it's, you know, I hunted in Georgia last year probably, I I don't know exactly how many days, probably 15, 20 days. Um, And, you know, I, I think I seen one deer the entire year that was, you know, five or better. It was just they just don't move they get a lot of pressure and we have a we have a pretty good farm we hunt down there but it's just bred in those deer you know from from the beginning of time or whenever it was i guess just all the heavy hunt pressure they get they just they don't move in daylight i mean you can get a good cold front the conditions be perfect you know maybe you see one right at dark but it's it's tough it's really tough we got to hunt there um about two weeks ago on opening weekend and we actually seen some some shooters it was it was the coolest it's ever been that I could remember down there in September. And we seen, you know, five or six shooters open in weekend. So it has to be ideal scenario. You have to have a really solid food source. You have to have all the stars lined up just to see one. Then once you see him, then you got to figure out how to kill him. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's a challenge. Yeah, I guess, uh, that's part of what we love about deer hunting though, I suppose, is the fact that it is such a challenge and, uh, when it does finally come together, it's magic. It is. That's why you do it. Yeah. That that moment of truth. So uh, so with a lot of guys, you know, over the past two weeks, their seasons have been opening, and and yours and mine and, and some of us in some of these other states open October first. We're opening, you know, just in a couple of days. With that early season time frame, you know, what are the main things that you're focusing on from a hunting tactic standpoint? Uh, what are those main things that you're looking to do in this early season to try to get a stab at one? Well, it's all about the weather early season. You know, if you get the right weather, I think the first 10 days of October can be the best time to see or kill a mature buck in Iowa. 
but you got to have the weather. You got to have that front that we're, you know, we're about to have. And, you know, what I try to do is just look at where I've been getting the summer pictures of that, those certain deer. And I just figure for the most part, 90% of those deer are still going to be in that location. We have some deer that shed velvet. We never see them again. Or we have some deer that once they shed velvet, they move over onto our farms. But, you know, that's why I run my cameras. I'll start putting them out July 4th. I run them off. I'll try to check them every week or two. And I'm not all fall summer. I'm sorry. And then once I do that, I, I wait on the right cold front, the right wind, and try to move in for the kill. But it, it's tough because, you know, you don't get that perfect weather, but you know a deer's living in a certain food plot, and you want to go in there, but you got to wait on that weather front. And if we, I know I thought we talked about this in the, uh, the earlier in the conversation, but until you, you get the right scenario, we don't, we don't move in for the kill. Yeah. So, we talked about weather, like temperature stuff, um, and I know we, we talked a little bit about how Mark has shared a lot of ideas, Mark Drury, but is do you pay much attention to stuff like the moon or barometric pressure or some of those other things, like or like I, any of those? Yeah, barometric pressure for sure. You know, I'm, I've learned a, a little bit of that from Mark, you know, rise and fall and whatever it may be. As long as it's moving, I like to hunt. You know, I, I like to hunt. I like about a 5 to 10 mile per hour wind. Um, the moon, I've... You know, I like a rising moon just because they seem to get up off their feet a little earlier or get up on their feet a little earlier in the afternoons. Um, but besides that, I don't put a lot of stock into the moon just because I've, I've kept journals on that for the, you know, the past 20 years. And I can't, you know, get a good enough pattern to really believe in it. And I know some people live and die by the moon, but to me, I, you know, I'm more of a weather guy. Always have been. Yeah, it definitely seems that that's the, the ultimate factor, you know, that that temperature change and some of those things, that seems to be, the, at least from what I've seen and a lot of the guys I've talked to, it seems like that's the greatest influencer. And then some of these things like pressure or moon kind of can enhance it a little bit maybe. Um, but it's a it's a much smaller factor, I think, compared to something like temp. It is. It is in the Midwest. And I know, you know, trophy or, you know, deer hunting's regional. Everything works different, you know, different parts of the country. But, but right there, Iowa, Illinois, Kansas, where I hunt, you got to have those weather fronts. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, given some of these conversations we've been having over past weeks, you know, I've been trying to do just a better job uh, or was planning on doing a better job in the past years and this year of just trying to see, you know, every time I do see a mature buck or, you know, get a daylight picture of a mature buck, trying to like figure out why, why was he moving during daylight at this time? Lots of times in the past, you know, I shouldn't have done this, but I'd see one. Oh, great. There's a big buck. And I would never try to understand the reasoning behind it, but I'm trying to change that. Um, so just last night I was scouting. Uh, from a distance, and I saw three potential shooters come into one of my Michigan food plots during daylight. Uh-huh. So I was trying to figure out, you know, why? You know, what was the reason for this? And I, so I started looking through all the different potential factors that people talk about that might influence deer movement. You know, all these things we talked about, temperature, pressure, different moon things, uh, wind speeds, etc. And, you know, one of the interesting things I saw was that we definitely had a cold front hitting overnight. So that was the biggest thing. And then the other thing, like you mentioned a minute ago, we had that moon rising during the last hour of daylight. And I really think that could have been what triggered all that really great daylight movement. I'm sorry. I just had a phone cut off for a second and came right back on. But Oh, no you, problem. You were talking about you seen that buck last night, and then you're just trying to figure out exactly what's causing them to move. 
Yeah, exactly. And I just said that, you know, it ended up being, when I looked at all the different factors, that just the things that you'd mentioned there, the cold front hitting and moon rising during the last hour daylight, those seemed to be perfect for deer movement, and I saw it. So it's just interesting to, you know, to talk about these things and then to actually see it in action. It's pretty cool. Right, yeah. I was elk hunting this last week, and we had the full moon. Um, and, you know, the, the elk are rutting all, all night, but it was so hot. I was blaming it more on the hot weather than I was the moon. I'm sure the moon had a factor, but, uh, you know, it, it wasn't nothing like what the weather was doing to them. But, but yeah, that over time, if you start paying attention to that stuff, you know, what's causing these deer to move, you're going to, you're going to come up with, you know, the magic formula. Yeah, definitely. So moving kind of fast forwarding through the season, you know, if in the early season, you're really focusing on that weather, it sounds like you're, you're keying in on some of your food. What about that? "Quote unquote October lull time of the year. Once we get to mid October, what are you doing at that time of year? Um, not hunting, typically. You know, <laughs> I mean, I'll go somewhere else and hunt. Usually, we duck hunting. You know, we'll go to Dakotas and duck hunt for a weekend or something in October. But you know, after those first ten days or something, you know, I may shoot some does. Uh, I may go to Illinois, check on a farm, or go to Kansas and hunt for a couple of days. But our farm just typically shuts off to about Halloween. And I don't spend a lot of time, you know, messing it up because that's that's what I call low percentage days. You know, it's and I kind of just try to try to brace myself for the rut, if that makes sense. You know, because we usually go at them pretty hard those first three weeks in November. So after I hunt the first week or two in October, I'll kind of, you know, try to get back in good standing with my wife and <laughs> get ready for the rut. You know. <laughs> Because yeah. it can be a trying time. Oh, man. So there, this is probably the most important topic of the entire episode. Can you give us any advice for that, staying in good graces with the wife? <laughs> man, you know, my wife, she likes to hunt a little bit. Um, so she understands, you know, the method to the madness. She she gets why I do it. But, uh, you know, used to, I, you know, I was single. It didn't matter. You know, I waited until I started to get married just because I loved to hunt so much. But when I finally got married, um, she was – that she goes wherever I go. So that, that makes it easy. So if I run to Kansas, check on a farm for a long weekend, or I go to Illinois to, to plant food plots, uh, probably, you know, 90% of those trips, she's right there by my side. So I got a very supportive wife. Um, and I cannot complain there, but you got to keep mama happy or else, uh, <laughs> it'd make for a long winter. That's the truth. <laughs> that so, yeah, the it's, truth. it's, it's a constant battle. We, we all must, uh, keep uh striving to perfect yeah that's the truth and you've got a little one now too so is that making things a little more challenging too yeah she can't hunt as much now you know last year she um she didn't shoot a buck last year now it's the first year she hasn't shot a buck since we've been married so you know it's just with trying to line up a babysitter or when you do is it you know is it the right night to go hunting or, or whatever but you know she's she's killed a lot of deer but this year you know we got a couple people lined up who may can step in and uh and help babysit and plus he's a little older now so that's gonna be easier yeah that'll be cool very cool yeah so so okay moving forward continuing let's say we we passed the october lull you killed some ducks you checked out kansas halloween hits now talk to me about what is the Lindsay way for having success during the rut you know going back to weather you know anytime around halloween if you can start to get that get a good cold front, there's going to be a couple of days of action there. Um, but our farm typically doesn't turn on till about, you know, the fifth 
through 7th of November. And it seems like every year it gets a little later. I don't, I can't really explain why, but it, it seems like it does. There's a lot of our neighbors, not a, a lot of our other, our friends in Southern Iowa, they start, you know, Halloween kicks it off and, you know, the 1st through the 10th, they're, you know, just gangbusters. But it, it's not really that way for us. It's, it seems like, you know, the, it used to be the 5th. Now it's 7th or 8th until it really gets going. And um, it's going to go hard for, you know, 10, 12 days and then kind of going to be over. And then every year is a little different, but you don't really know when that peak of the rut happened until it's over, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Do you have a main strategy that you that you focus on, like betting areas or pinch points or anything like that during the rut? In the rut, I'm all about funnels. You know, I, I do like to get close to betting areas, but not too close. But we do have, like I said earlier, a lot of timber. Um, the deer can really go anywhere. So I try to key in on those stands that, and even if they're not necessarily in the rut, right where a buck I was getting pictures of all summer because they, they travel a little more in the rut, but I'm all about funnels. You know, whether it's a funnel on, the, on a field edge, funnel in the hardwoods, funnel on a you know, creek bottom, I, I just like to get those does coming past me. And usually that's when you get your cruisers or, you know, your lockdown bucks and you know, coming by. Yeah, so so I know, you know, we talk about this a lot, funnels and pinch points. And, you know, for those of us that have been doing this a long time, we know what these funnels and pinch points might look like. You know, like you mentioned, it might be something with the creek bottom with a pinch and timber. It might be something else. But I do know there's some people listening right now that maybe aren't as experienced, and they hear these terms but not, not necessarily be able to visualize it. So, Jeff, can you maybe describe to us in detail a couple example funnels just for someone who maybe doesn't know exactly what we're talking about? Well, in Iowa, we have a lot of ditches, you know, and those ditches dictate deer movement. And sometimes a deer will go right through the ditch, but not a lot. A whitetail is pretty lazy, pretty uh, path of least resistant animal. So, you know, whether it's in the timber, uh, you know, th- through the topo that's pushing them there, saddles. You know, I, I love hunting saddles, you know. Um, I love hunting, uh, you know, funnels in the timber you know, between bedding areas. But I'm trying to think of, you know, one of my best spots is right in the middle of a big timber block. And it is like the only flat spot in that whole timber. And when you're shed hunting, no matter where you walk, picking up sheds, it seems like you always come out in this spot, whether if you're trying to or not. And, you know, I keep those GPS apps on my phone when I'm shed hunting. And if I find that spot that I I keep walking by on accident, you know, I'm marking them like put a stand right here, you know. So that's that's when I find a lot of those funnels is in, is in shed season, but you know, they're, they're in fields too. You know, you get a lot of saddles and fields, big bucks like to cross those saddles or those pinch points and fields. And, um, I like to find a brushy oak in one of those areas and, and hang a stand in it. Yeah. That could be a dynamite spot. And that's, that's kind of one of those under overlooked ones, like the low spot in a field or a saddle in a field. I think a lot of us, you know, assume early, at least maybe where I'm at, I'm assuming there's not going to be deer crossing these open fields, but I still do see them doing it sometimes, but it's in those very specific low spots, those saddles in the field where they can stay down below the level of sight and sneak through there when they have to get to the other side. Right, sure. My dad shot a big buck in Illinois last year crossing the saddle field. I have about an 80-acre field on the farm I own over in Pike County, Illinois. And, I mean, you could be standing anywhere in that field and not have seen this buck except he was in his elevated stand, and he's seen that buck crossing from one pitch, one pinch, on the edge of the woods to the other and it was probably a 200 yard crossing but it was in the belly of the field you know it just 
they love to do that. And it's, it's easy to overlook those spots because if you hang a stand there, you usually can't see very far, but it is a dynamite spot. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to see how those deer just naturally find and, and use those, those areas that give them a the little bit of edge from a safety standpoint or ease of travel standpoint. Right. Yeah. And, and my Illinois farm has a lot of, a lot of topo stuff, you know, going back to what I was talking about earlier with, uh, you know, reading the North American whitetails growing up, it has a lot of, it's bluff country where I hunt in Illinois. It's right off the Illinois river and it's a lot more steeper and, and more rugged terrain than I'm used to hunting in Iowa. So I'll be honest, I'm getting lessons every time I hunt there on how those deer move. I, I imagine it's similar to, you know, Buffalo County, Wisconsin, or, or some of these places that they call the bluff country. So I'm learning a lot about the bluff country and I'm starting to pay a lot more attention to topo because of, uh, you know, what I'm having to try to figure out on my Illinois farm. Yeah, that's fascinating stuff. I'm I'm hunting a spot this year up in northeast Iowa where it's got a lot of that bluff country too and, and definitely the hilliest area I've ever hunted. So I'm I'm in the same kind of learning experience boat as you, it sounds like just trying to, you know, take some of the things I've read about and heard about and better apply it to exactly where I'm hunting. It'll be interesting. Right, yeah. So well, if you uh, find any of those secrets out or figure them out, pass them my way. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try. I'll try. Um all right, so what about, like, you know, when I'm thinking about hunting in Iowa or, or Kansas or one of these famed whitetail places where, you know, on average you've got more older age class bucks, you know, my thought immediately jumps to being more aggressive, you know, calling, rattling, using things like decoys and things like that. That's kind of what I assume, and, and to a degree I've seen. Are you able to get aggressive like that where you're hunting in Iowa? If so, you know, what of those types of tactics are you using and having success with? I rattle a lot. I, you know, I'll carry a grunt call starting the beginning of October. I'm, I'm not scared to start, you know, giving some soft grunts then, but in the rut, I'm rattling probably every 20, 30 minutes. And, and a lot of people don't like to blind call. You know, I do, um, if I got a good wind, but I do a lot of blind calling. I don't do a lot of blind, blind grunting. You know, I figure they, they come in slower on that, but I like the deer, the fast paced rut action and, the rattling kind of kind of gets them fired up decoys i've killed some deer over decoys but i figure there's only about a three or four day window in the iowa rut that the decoys decoys really work well on the mature bucks that's that that's just my observations i'm probably wrong just because i don't carry them as much as i used to but it seems like the more i put them out there if you're hunting a spot that's got a lot of deer you're going to have those does come out they're going to be stomping they're going to know something's just not exactly right you know with your with your doe or your buck decoy and usually they'll mess up one of my hunts more than they'll help it so i only carry a decoy you know like i say three or four times a year but rattle i mean i'll have blisters in the rut from rattling i rattle in a lot of bucks you know and i I kill a lot of bucks uh, by rattling but it's one of those deals where that's that's my aggressive tactic so talk to me about your rattling sequence are you just smash them together for 30 seconds or do you tickle or what you know during the rut when you're out there and you're doing your blind rattling sessions walk me through what that sounds like and looks like yeah i'm not doing a lot of uh, uh tickling with the horns but i you know i'll, I'll typically get, typically get some good massive sheds you know and i'll get the same side you know typically two right sides of the shed and i'll carry them and i'll uh i'll just make a noise as loud as i can without you know busting my fingers you know I'll, I'll bang them together try to get the mass on the horns to really resonate through the timber and i'll go for about probably 
15 to 20 seconds, something like that. And I'll try to sound as realistic as possible. Um, and then if I see a buck in the timber, whether he's chasing a doe, cruising, whatever, I'll, I'll grab those horns. I'll, I'll turn my backside where he can't and try to rattle where he can't see me. And, um, same type deal. But when I, when I see the deer, I'm only rattling probably five to 10 seconds. I'm just trying to get his attention. But when I'm just doing the blind calling, just beating the, the sheds together, I'm, I'm going for 20, 30 seconds. Okay. Have you, I'm, I'm thinking you probably have. smoking. <laughs> yeah, man, they're, they're burning. I mean, you can smell like the, the horns smashing together. Like I'm going nuts up there. <laughs> that's awesome. I got to imagine when, uh, when it works out and you see one tearing your way, that's got to get the blood boiling. Oh, it is. That's, that's best. You know, that, that week to 10 days where the rattling antlers is working. That's, that's the best time of the year to be alive. In my opinion. I mean, that's, that's what you live for. That's why I do this is to, is that that magical rut in november and that rut you know the the rattling just just adds some pizzazz to it i bet now i gotta believe hunting where you're at have you seen some some big bucks go at it in person yeah i have i seen the believe it or not the biggest buck fight ever seen in my life was two years ago um i was hunting with my wife and it was in january and there was these two bucks. She would have shot either one of them. And, you know, I'm moving around the way trying to get it all on film because it was the coolest thing i ever seen. And they got done, and the, the younger buck beat the older buck and ran him in timber, and we didn't get to shoot either one of them. But, but I, I've seen a few. Not a not as ton, not as many as I should. Um, you know, I've seen those couple, you know, the two big ones that we had locked up about three or four years ago. You know, we, we, that was the, the two largest ones I've ever seen fighting personally but but i don't see as many you know just buck fights as you as you think i would you know i see a lot of you know bucks posturing up and then usually they all know who's the boss and they kind of just leave the field or go to the other end and stay out of the main guy's way yeah that's got to be cool Uh, every time i've ever hunted in iowa or one of these big buck states it's just there's a different feeling when you hunt somewhere like that where you know that Something like that could potentially happen. A couple giants could come out and go at it. Just the idea that's potentially out there just gets me pretty excited. Right. Oh yeah. That's 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 what's so exciting about the rut. You never can know never know what can happen. And you know, a buck fight's a rare sight, but if you see one, you'll never forget it. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of rare sights, what's just this is just kind of random curiosity here. What's the biggest buck you've seen while actually out out hunting like a a rough guess on score. Have you seen one that you think's over 200? Yeah, I've seen a few. Yeah, I had one one year uh, about about six years ago. I think I seen like two over 200. Um, my neighbor killed one of them. He was he, he's actually the state record a crossbow buck, and I had him at 60 yards. He was like 232, 237, something like that. It was a deer we call Mr. Reconics. I got a lot of summer pictures of this deer, just a giant. That was the only time I seen him. He was locked down with a doe. Um, and his two fawns were right, or the does two fawns were hanging under my stand. And so I knew she lived in that area. I camped out there for three days, never seen it. And he ended up killing him late season. And, wow. uh, I think it was that same year I'd seen another buck that, um, that died of EHD. I guess what happened. I seen him October 1st. It was deer we call freak nasty. Uh, he was a, I think he was six that year at four and a half. He was in the one eighties. And we let him go, and sorry, I lost my headset there, but no he was problem. in the 180s and let him go. And um, the next year, I don't remember if it was five or six, but 
I think he was six, and he, he was he had to be two thirties, two forties. I seen him opening day. Uh, I walked out that night through a creek bottom, trying to go around where he exited the field, and I bumped him that night, and never seen him again the rest of my life. So, wow. not sure what happened, but that those two right there that come to mind are are about as big as I get. Yeah, man, I'm I'm kind of going on a tangent here. I promise I'll get back to tactics. Oh, stuff, no problem. But. but my favorite storyline ever from a jury outdoor show or DVD was the story of Goliath and Baby G. So <laughs> yep, for if, sure. If anyone out there hasn't seen this DVD or the clip online, you got to go to YouTube and check out the Jury Outdoor TV YouTube channel. At least, if you don't actually get the DVD, at least check out the little 10-minute clip that shares this story of, of Jeff's dad, David's experience hunting this buck called Goliath, and then I think it was I think it was the next year, then another buck, Baby G. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like for your dad, having that encounter with Goliath, missing him, and then him getting killed by someone else, and then killing Baby G the next year? Yeah, it was probably the most emo- emotional roller coaster year of his life. You know, I'll probably never have another experience like that. I hope you know we have another deer like that. But Goliath was a special deer. You know, he he lived on us, but he had a big home range, so he didn't live on us all the time. But he was he was the perfect storm of a mega giant. You know, world class animal. He was one of those that I could not get a picture of in the summertime. And usually I can get a picture of every deer on our farm, but could not get a picture of him in the summertime. He didn't like corn. He wouldn't even come into a cornfield. Um, he was just a very elusive deer, and that that had all the potential to be end up. The year he missed him, I think he was already, or hitting him in the back, skinned his back. He was like 250. But two years before that, when we first knew he was there, he was a 200 inch whitetail. You know, just just awesome sheds by anybody's standards. But what he blew into was amazing. But that being said, at at six and a half or five and a half when he had the when he was like 210. You know, we would have shot him all day long, but because he was so elusive, we didn't shoot him, you know, and, and he was able to stay out of, uh, stay away from the hunters and, and ended up, you know, just growing this world-class animal. And I remember having a couple of trail cams up. The only time I got trail cam pictures of him twice. One time was on a scrape and the camera was real hidden and he had his head up in the leaves and he didn't see the camera. The next time is the only time I've ever had a buck do this. It was in the timber on a big community scrape. He come in, I was on the reconics on the, the three burst every one second, the scrape motor, whatever it is. He seen the camera. The next pick you can see him taking steps backwards. Then third pick you see his tail just getting out of there as fast as he can. And so he just he was super elusive and he just so happened to have those genes that really made him world class because he was so elusive. Because a lot of our other bucks, you know, if they get to 200, yeah, we're going to shoot them the first chance we get, you know. And but this guy wouldn't wouldn't give you that chance. Man, that's 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 what we all dream of is is someday being in a position to see that kind of deer. That's for sure. Yeah, and when he came out on that field, I mean, I'm pretty sure his his deer hunting career peaked right there when you know double drop tying in the snow, jump the fence, and. uh you know, oh. we still think if he would have had a cameraman, if he wasn't trying to run the camera and shoot the deer, he probably would have got him. Yeah, that's still like the coolest video I think I've ever seen. Like every time I watch that, like we're with buddies or we watch that DVD again, we all just kind of like jaws drop and we start like, oh my gosh, every time he comes in the field. That is just <laughs> crazy. Yeah, it's, it's a little bittersweet. You know, he's over it now. And once he got Baby G, it definitely helped ease the pain, you know, because <laughs> Baby G ended up scoring about the same, but he still is just not as an impressive deer as Goliath. You know, that's got to probably be one of the most impressive free ranging deer to, you know, ever be killed. Yeah. 
Unbelievable deer. So, so we are running out of time here, but I do want to ask you one more kind of tactic related question related to something you just mentioned there a second ago. Um, trail cameras. What would you say is the greatest lesson you've learned or the biggest takeaway you've had when it comes to using trail cameras? What, what do we absolutely need to know from you about the best way to use those? Well, just knowing what deer you got there, you know, trail cameras are a double-edged sword in my opinion, because, you know, you're just going to tell you what deer you got there or tell you what deer you don't have there. So if you know you got a deer in the area, you know, to, to hold out for this buck or, or it's able to, you're able to document these deer year after year and figure out how old they are. And then, you know, when to go in and get them. So, you know, as much as I love trail cameras, sometimes I do love to hunt farms that I haven't ran trail cameras on because I know when I see a big buck, you know, I don't have to worry about, Oh, you know, who is this guy or, or what, what's our plans for him? You know, it's just, if he's, if I think he's old enough, just kill him. But, but that the summertime, you know, being able to get pictures of them and realizing what deer you got, I think that is the number one, you know, management tactic for our herd that, that helps us year to year decide on what bucks we're going to harvest and what bucks we're going to, you know, decide to let go and try to try to grow another Goliath per se. Yeah, they're an incredible tool, that's for sure. Super helpful, but to your point, they can be dangerous too if you're not careful with them. Right, they can. Yep. Yeah. Well, Jeff, we unfortunately have got to wrap things up. I'd uh, I'd love to hear more about some of these big deer you've got running around there, but hopefully we'll be seeing something on Facebook or or Instagram soon with you sitting next to a giant in the coming days and weeks. I hope so, man. Same here to you guys. I know you guys are getting excited about what's about to kick off, so maybe we'll all three get one. I hope so. <laughs> man, I hope so. So for everyone out there listening, if they want to learn more about the Lindsay Way or what you're doing online, you know, where can they go to, to find some info about that stuff? Yeah, you know, we have Instagram, Twitter, Facebook pages. You know, our website is, is pretty much up and running, still kind of raw, but, you know, we'll start documenting and, and start, you know, kind of updating from the field on our social media. That's, that's kind of what the, the world does now. And so that's our plan this fall. And, um, you know, we're, we're going to get the word out and hopefully, you know, be ready to rock and roll come, uh, you know, July of next year when the show hits the air. Awesome. Well, uh, I can't wait to check it out, Jeff. And thanks again for joining us today and good luck this season. Yeah. Good luck to you guys too, man. Thanks for y'all's time. All right, Jeff, have a good one. All right. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed that chat with Jeff. And, you know, while I know that many of you and myself included don't necessarily hunt on the same type of farm that Jeff has, you know, it's still a lot of fun to hear about, you know, what's going on out there and you know, the, the type of opportunities that you might have in a spot like that where, you know, a lot of us dream of hunting something like that. And, and I know that Jeff has realized they've got a great situation out there and, and are taking advantage of it. And I think that's pretty awesome. So, if you do ever get a chance to head out somewhere like Iowa or Kansas, you now also have a little bit of an idea of what you might have to expect and look forward to. So either way, awesome stuff from Jeff. I'm glad we got to chat with him, and I hope you guys enjoyed it too. Now, before we wrap things up, we do need to give a special thank you to our friends at Carbon Express Arrows, who are sponsoring this specific podcast. In recent episodes, I've mentioned a giveaway that they're running this fall as part of their launch of the new Whitetail Arrow. And that's still going on right now, so be sure to visit whitetail.carbonexpress.com to learn more about that opportunity to win an all-expenses-paid hunt to Giles Island with Carbon Express and the QDMA. That will be a pretty cool hunt. So 
In addition, though, I also wanted to mention just really quickly my own personal experiences with Carbon Express. You know, when I started bow hunting uh, 15 years ago or so, I think it was, I'm pretty sure the very first carbon, yeah, the very first carbon arrows that I ever picked up and used were Carbon Express. And ever since then, that's the only brand I've ever bought. I can't ever remember buying a different brand other than Carbon Express. And over all those years, they just have never let me down. And these days, I'm shooting the Carbon Express Maxima Red Arrows, which are pretty incredible. But you know what I've found is that regardless whether you go with a top line arrow like the Maxima Reds or more mid-range arrow like the Whitetail Arrow, I think you'll come to find that these arrows consistently always just seem to get the job done. And that's why I just keep on shooting them. I think you'll find the same thing. So in addition to that, we do want to thank the rest of our partners who've helped to make sure that the Wired to Hump podcast stays on the air. Big thank you to Sika Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonics, Lacrosse Boots, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And thank you to, to all of you guys and girls for, you know, hearing us out when we do talk about our partners and our sponsors. Um, I know that we're all inundated with ads and product promotions all the time on TV and in magazines. And every time you're, you're getting something hunting related, usually there's some kind of promotion in there. And I know that can get annoying sometimes. So we're really trying to try to do a good job of, of talking about our partners on occasion, but not in such a way that's intrusive to you guys or annoying. And we're trying to be really honest about what we're doing too. So I hope that's coming through. I hope you guys are okay with what we're doing. And, and thank you for, for your patience with that. Now, a couple more quick updates. First off, make sure to be checking out the Whitetail Q&A podcast. That's our new show that we launched about a month ago. It's supposed to be twice a week. I'm struggling with that a little bit, to be honest with you. So right now it's been about once a week the last couple of weeks. But it's a short and sweet podcast where I'm answering one single listener submitted question. And uh, I think you'll enjoy it. So make sure to check that out on iTunes or at wiredhunt.com slash whitetailqa. Whew, I'm running out of breath here. If you guys have enjoyed this podcast and our past episodes, we would incredibly appreciate it if you could leave us a rating or review on iTunes. So far, I think 332 of you have already done that, and that's incredible. That's making us the, the top-rated deer hunting podcast on iTunes, which is, which is awesome. So thank you all so much for doing that already. If you have, and if you haven't, and if you have you know some thoughts and opinions on the show that you'd like to share, we would love to hear what you have to say. Thank you for that feedback. Now that all out of the way, it's time to officially, finally wrap up the show. Next time I talk to you guys, I'll have been starting to hunt. I'll be in Michigan on opening day. I'll have been hunting in Ohio for a couple days. And hopefully I've got some exciting stories. I hope you all are racking up some great stories. We hope to hear from you soon. Make sure you're sharing your success with us. Email us. Let us know how you're doing. I hope that you guys are learning some things in the podcast and that you can put them into action. So until next time, good luck on your upcoming hunts. And of course, always stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved 
via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. 